I'm so glad to be here with you guys today. Look forward to preaching with you. I invite you to turn your Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter 4. I enjoy teaching God's truth from the Apostle Peter to you because I'm always about us as a church. And when Peter writes this letter, he is always writing to the church and giving some practical advice to the us about living life together, lives of faith as followers of Jesus Christ. And so Peter writes to help churches who live in a society that does not value Jesus and who are often hostile to the teachings of Jesus and to those who follow the teachings of Jesus. And so Peter emphasizes two key themes for living a life of faith in a world that is hostile to our Savior. And those two key themes are hardship and holiness. Now the hardship part takes no effort on our part. It will just happen to you sometime. Sooner or later, if you are a follower of Jesus and you live your life as a follower of Jesus, then sooner or later, the world will turn on you because of your faith. And you don't have to do anything to make that happen. It's just going to happen. takes no effort on your part. Now, the holiness amidst hardship, that's different. That takes great effort on our part. And it's very important as we go through life that, really, that we realize that the gospel is our guiding light in our effort to be holy because our God is holy. And so Peter, animated by the gospel in him in his life, teaches us that suffering is meant to lead us to Christ-likeness. We suffer because our Savior suffered. But also, we realize that God then is supernaturally able to take that suffering and use it in our lives and actually use that suffering to make us more like Jesus. And that's exactly what the well-known Romans 8.28 means when it says God is able to work out all things for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. It means that God can take the most miserable sufferings in our life and supernaturally work in our life as we respond to him by making us more like our Savior who also suffered. His purpose in suffering then is to make us like Christ. And that's what that passage in Romans 8, 28, 29, 30 says. The purpose of all suffering, when God works it out for good, what does that mean? It means he makes us like Christ as we suffer because our Savior suffered. But it also means this. We can endure in our sufferings in life because he endured when he suffered. And because he is in us, we can endure. As Jesus was motivated to endure, to bring glory to God, then we too can endure if we live the same life motivated to bring glory to God. And we can do it again because Jesus is in us. So as we look at our text today, Peter teaches us about living an ethical life, an ethical life of holiness as instruments of God's grace 
in a world that is filled with anger but starved for grace. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think most of us, as we look at the life that we live, we want more out of life than merely to survive until tomorrow and then do it all over again. Uh, dig the ditch to get the money, to buy the food, to dig the ditch. I think we all want more out of life than that. I think we all want to make a difference in this world. At least we want to make a difference in other people's lives. Uh, and if we can make the world a better place for us having lived in it, great. And Peter offers two key principles for viewing life that will help you make the best of your life. And by that I mean this, help you make the best of your life and that you can have a real impact in the lives of others. And in so doing, he offers a gospel-centered guidance for living life. And he says, when we do this, we live as instruments of God's grace, knowing that Jesus is coming again. And so with Peter's guidance, let's view life with an end-time seriousness in a modern-day stewardship. And talking about an end-time seriousness, Peter emphatically states the end of all things is at hand. And he says that should mean something to you. That should have an impact on you. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter's calling us to live life with a bigger picture than what we often do day by day. Listen, we are notorious for living life without the big picture. In other words, we are very busy in our life. We're good at that. We're good at living very, very busy lives. But we often live very busy lives, not deliberately aware of who we are and where we're going and why we're doing everything that keeps us so busy. One author says, we are so busy climbing the ladder of success that we fail to realize that it's on the wrong wall. In 1980, I joined my first Cobra attack helicopter squadron as a young Marine lieutenant. And I remember this major coming from headquarters, second Marine aircraft wing, and he was gonna give us a class on what is the purpose of the wing, of the Marine aircraft wing, how do we fit into it? What was its mission? which was actually supposed to inform us as to why we were there, what we were supposed to be doing. This officer did something very interesting. He took a $20 bill, he licked it and he stuck it on his forehead and he said, this $20 bill goes to the officer who can recite from the Marine Aviation Doctrine Manual the mission of this squadron. Nobody claimed 
that $20 bill, not even the commanding officer of the squadron. Nobody could stand up and recite from the doctrine manual the mission of the squadron. Now, here's this room full of officers working 11 hours a day, six days a week, ready to go to war, ready to lay our lives down on the line, and nobody can even recite the mission for why we're there. But we're as busy as we can be. See, it's easy to miss the big picture while staying very busy. I think it's pretty easy to stay pretty busy as a mom and forget entirely raising kids and forget entirely what your real mission is. Not that I've ever done that. I spent most of my life as a guy, you know, so I, I just uh, haven't, uh, haven't really got into the whole mom thing, but I, I watched my wife do it, and I remember my daughter raising three kids and her actually asking me to pray for her by saying, Dad, just help me, three preschool age kids, and say, Dad, just please pray that I will just see Jesus in the things that I do day in and day out. And so I think it's very easy to stay busy in life and lose your awareness of what your real mission, what you really is, what the big picture of what God is charging you to do. It's easy to go work every day and not even know your company's purpose statement. You know what? This church puts its mission statement on your bulletin every week. I bet a bunch of you don't even know that. I bet some of you could go here for five years, even 10 years, and you couldn't even quote the mission statement of your church, even though it's on your bulletin every week. See what I'm saying? You're looking down. I see a bunch of you looking down. Oh, really? Look at there. You know, uh, all I'm saying is it's easy to stay busy and not even know why you're doing what you're doing. It's just easy to go to church every Sunday for years and not even know what the mission statement is. For the Christian, the big picture for our lives comes with a deepening understanding of the gospel. And the big picture looks like this. God created the world as a paradise in which men and women would be created in his image to rule over the world as his stewards of it and to enjoy him forever. But we chose to rebel against God's will. We chose the way of sin because simply we want to do it our way instead of God's way. And so consequently, the Bible says we've all gone astray from God. We have lost our way because we have forsaken his way. And for that rebellion, we justly stand condemned before a holy God. And apart from God, God's word says we will remain enslaved to our sinful nature that wants our way over God's way. And so when this happened, paradise was lost. When mankind chose rebellion instead of fellowship with God in his way, paradise was lost. And every day when we watch the news and live our lives, we are reminded of all the world tragedies that occur because paradise was lost and sin came into our world. But in love, not at all because we deserve it, in love, God has provided a way for us to be redeemed from our enslavement to sin and restored into his family the way he originally intended. And in love, God sent Jesus, his son, to die on the cross to pay for our sins against a righteous, just, holy God who must demand that sin be paid for. And God promises that when we turn from sin in repentance, 
and we turn to him, trusting in what Christ did for our sins and taking God's free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, then God says that we are forgiven. On the promise of God, we are forgiven. On the promise of God, we are restored. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, on the authority of God alone, trusting completely in the promises of God for all that he says about our salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, Peter says we currently live in an age where God is redeeming lost people back to himself through faith in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. And when we get saved, we don't just get to go to heaven when we die. When we get saved, we join God's story. We become a living, breathing part of God's plan of redemption. That's the big picture when you get saved. You're not really embracing your salvation until your understanding of the gospel is so deepened that you are now keenly aware that you, in your salvation through Jesus Christ, have just become a living, breathing part of a dynamic, wonderful story. You are part of God's plan of salvation. But Peter says that age of redemption is coming to an end in preparation for a new age that is coming. This is what Peter is saying here. Jesus is coming again to bring God's kingdom to earth. Heaven and earth will be made new and will be made one and paradise will be restored. Everything, all people in the world at that time and all the world itself will live in the state of shalom, the state of peace, when everything and everybody is right with God as he intended in creation. And all God's people, all the redeemed of all the ages, all of those saved from the penalty of their sin by faith in their Savior, will live in eternity in joy because they live in the presence of Jesus, their Savior. And so in saying these words in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Peter is refreshing us anew in the gospel story. The end of the age is coming and preparation for a new and glorious age that will begin. The big picture is this. History is unfolding just the way God intends. And so to live knowing that the end of all things is at hand is to live constantly aware that there is an age of redemption, a story of redemption unfolding, and you live as a living part of that story. And so that story is coming to its intended conclusion. You know, when you read a book and you know you just have two more pages and then you get to the concluding chapter and you want that, that book to end in such a way that it made it worth it all the time that you spent reading it. Well, that's living the Christian life. In just a couple of more pages, we are going to start the concluding chapter. And on God's promise, it will be worth reading the book. It's going to be great. 
Peter's, Peter's saying two more pages and it all starts. And for Christ followers, Peter says, in that conclusion, your suffering will be vindicated. Jesus will come. He will bring his justice to this world. But to the rest of the world who does not acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Bible says this, every knee will be made to bow. Every knee will bow of things in heaven, of things in this earth, and of things under this earth. Every knee will be made to bow. It will be the time of God's judgment. Simple as that. Now, you know, in the first 80 years of the last century, God's judgment was a common theme of preaching. I think today maybe it's 40 years later, it may be a bit fashionable to sort of for people to make fun of those old fire and brimstone preachers. Now I admit that maybe back then, maybe we did go too far and maybe there was an overemphasis of hell and an overemphasis on judgment. And I only say that because I realize that it's possible for some people to simply pray a prayer to Jesus hoping to avoid hell. And what I'm saying is you can't get saved just by having a desire to avoid hell. But I'm also suggesting to the, this, if we did overemphasize it back then, it would be just as big a mistake to pendulum swing and underemphasize it right now. Because there are also people professing Christ in a prayer simply wanting to add heaven to the end of their dream life here in America. And so if it's true that you can't get saved, just by wanting to avoid hell, it's just as true that you can't get saved simply by wanting to add heaven. The key is to be biblical. And being biblical, God's word that contains God's message says judgment is an essential part of the gospel. God's judgment is an essential part of the gospel. Maybe it shouldn't be overemphasized, but neither can it be underemphasized. Jesus says that to be saved means something. We say Jesus saves. That means something. It's not a simple prayer that enables you to go to eternal candy land when you die. It's more than that. You have to be saved from something. You have to be saved to something. You are saved from the wrath of God's judgment. And therefore, you are saved to a life, now and forever, that will bring glory to the one who paid the price to save you. Salvation is a way of life. It's a way of life on earth following Christ. It's a way of life on earth right now, hard as it is and perfect as we do it. But it's a way of life that is meant to depict the way that life will be when we are actually in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's our goal, to live that life now. Judgment is coming to this world when Jesus comes, and Peter says, it's a serious thing, so be serious about it. That's what he means in verse 7 when he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded in your prayers. Peter reminds us that we will never appreciate being saved unless we have a good understanding of what we have been saved from, and at the same time, a good understanding of what we are saved to. 
The gospel says that because I have experienced God's love in giving me faith to believe, I can now be a loving person to others. Because God loved me first, I can love him back. Because he loved me, I can love others with the love that I have experienced in Christ. That's living life in response to the gospel that saved me. And Peter says it looks like this. When we all do it together, when we all do it together, this is what it looks like. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And only the gospel of grace, my friends, can give us the grace to treat each other this way. Only by grace can we really treat each other the way that it's being described here. Only in the gospel of grace can we find what it takes to surrender all of our rights to live in Jesus, preferring one another over ourselves. Only in the gospel of grace can we do that. Only in the gospel of grace can we truly understand for life. Follow me here that we can only experience true freedom when we give ourselves as volunteer slaves to our Lord Jesus Christ. You realize the paradox of that. The paradox where true freedom is actually found in volunteer slavery. I am free when I have given myself as a bondservant to my Lord Jesus Christ. Only by grace can you even fathom that truth. You have no chance of living it apart from the grace of God. So don't miss God's picture, big picture for your life, just because you're too busy living for your life. Peter is saying that all ethical decisions for living life must be made within the context that Jesus is coming again soon, and we will answer to him then for the way that we live now. That's the big picture. Live life with an end time seriousness for the day that you see Jesus. And I promise you on the word of God that you'll like it now and forever. It will be good. It will be to your blessing. That takes us to our next principle of viewing life as a modern day stewardship. View life as a modern-day stewardship with an end-time seriousness. Peter says, we are to be serious and watchful in our prayers because the end is near. Jesus is coming again. You grew up singing, some golden daybreak, Jesus will come because you believe it. And when you sang that, you sang that as an act of worship. And Peter says, you sing it. And he teaches it because Jesus says it. Matthew 24 and 25, all about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus ends his teaching that he's coming again soon. Jesus ends his teaching with this parable of the ten virgins that tells us, watch. Watch because you don't know the day and the hour, so watch. Live, that's what Peter's saying, live life with an end time seriousness. Live ready for his return. And you will be blessed, Jesus promises. But then Jesus follows the parable of the ten virgins with the parable of the talents in which he teaches us that life is a stewardship. And all that we have, we have been entrusted with. And all that we have, we will answer for. Not as sinners, but as stewards. 
all that we have, we will answer for as stewards of what we have been entrusted with. And the parable leads this to this key truth that Jesus says a life of good stewardship is when you are livid helping the least of his brethren. And that's what Peter's saying here. Love one another earnestly. That's what a life of stewardship looks like. Serve one another with every gift that God has given you according to his varied grace. That's a life of good stewardship. Meeting each other's needs, being there for each other, living the Christian life as Christ followers together for that day when he returns. So what that tells you this, church membership has a purpose. And it's not just you getting your name on the rolls for whatever you can get out of this organization like when you join a country club. It has a greater purpose than that. Church membership is part of your life stewardship. It's how this whole plan plays out. And when we do it right, when we do it God's way, the way Peter's teaching, church membership is really nothing more than a life covenant that you and I make together. A life covenant of living together and supporting one another and holding each other accountable in a good way as Christ followers for that day when Jesus comes. Peter says it looks like this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. We need that. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That's what being a good steward of God's varied grace is. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The stewardship of every Christian is simply this. Love with all your ability. With every gift that God has given you, love one another. Love fulfills, Jesus said, the whole Mosaic law. Live life loving God with all your heart. Love others. And you got the whole Ten Commandment thing covered. The work of Christ on the cross was a work of love on our behalf. But Christ demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Life is to be seen as a stewardship of grace given because grace was received. Life is seen as a stewardship of love given because he loved us first. Gospel love received demands that gospel love be given as a response. Even when you give your offering, freely give because freely you have received. Listen, as our hearts are moved by the love of Christ that we experience, we are changed. One of the ways you know you've changed is when you begin to develop that Christ-given love for others. It's a key indication to you of your salvation. And Peter says that changes the way that we live. It affects our everyday life in terms of ethics. An ethical life follows an understanding of the gospel. An ethical life is lived in the context of Jesus coming again. An ethical life is lived as a stewardship of God's grace. And so do you see that when you go to work every day, Living an ethical life is simply a byproduct of you having set your mind and your heart on the finished work of Jesus Christ and letting that inform you every day in the life that you live, in the decisions that you make. 
I briefly opened with an illustration of parents working their tails off raising kids, but not really knowing a purpose statement defining what they're doing all that busyness for. Christian parents are charged with raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's that simple. That's why God gave you children. When people come up here and have their babies dedicated, that's what they're dedicating them to. Because that's your mission. Now, our church's mission statement in your bulletin is to nurture you in Christian community so that you can then nurture them. Our goal with you and your goal with your kids needs to be setting their mind and hearts on the finished work of Jesus Christ and then simply living life in response to it. Living life in response to it. I told you last week, if you're parenting teens, you need to be way less concerned about what everybody's thinking about you and way more concerned about what your teen is thinking about Jesus. Okay? That's what it's all about. And teaching us ethics for life and the light of the day for when we're going to see Jesus. Peter wants us to take the time to ask ourselves some questions. Peter wants us to take the time to answer those questions about the lives that we are living. How are you going to carry out God's will regarding the stewardship of your church membership? Because that includes the stewardship of your, the plan of your personal growth. But it also includes the stewardship of your plan to have a brother-sister relationship with everybody else in your church family. How are you going to do that? Peter calls us to be deliberate about answering that question. How are you going to carry out God's will regarding the stewardship of your marriage and of raising children? How are you going to carry out God's will regarding the stewardship of your career? And those people that you see every day when you go to work, how are you going to carry out God's will regarding the stewardship of your empty nest years? How are you going to carry out God's will regarding the stewardship of your retirement? You think when Jesus comes again, you picture yourself standing before Jesus and saying, check out all the scorecards of all the golf courses I have played again across America. Check out the seashells that I have collected from one beach to the another, east coast to west coast. You think Jesus is going to be impressed because you lived your retirement serving you? We have got to get this, that the stewardship of life lived with a seriousness that Jesus is coming again demands that we get outside of ourselves and start deliberately loving others. I told you before, no church can survive just by acting like a self-licking ice cream cone, okay? This is not just us being here loving us, loving being here, enjoying the air conditioning and the fine seats you're sitting in. We have a mission, a stewardship for the day when we see Jesus. So let me conclude with the big picture I opened this sermon with. Peter says we get the big picture when we live life like our Savior, guided by one single driving truth, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
That's our goal together, to move beyond living for self to living for his glory. That can only be done when you and I purpose deliberately to live a life of repentance and faith on a daily basis. That will lead us to living a life ethically out there in the world every day with an end time seriousness. That's the gospel for life. That's theology touching the street out there where you live. That's a life of stewardship lived by the grace of God for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Now, Father, some deep truth here. We need it. Some heavy responsibility here. We need that too. We recognize our inability to do all that you have charged us with. We recognize our complete dependence upon the grace of God, even to make our hearts desire it. And we pray for that now. Open our hearts to see the wonder and beauty of who Jesus is and what he did for us. Open our hearts to respond to the love that loved us first by loving you with all of our hearts. Give us the grace to love the unlovely even as you loved us. Give us the grace to love others, to be patient with them, to earnestly love them, even as you have been patient and earnestly loved us. I'm praying this, God, so that everyone graduates beyond the go-to-church stage for life and honestly lives life as a stewardship of life for the day when we all see Jesus face to face. I pray this, God, so that it will be like we always sing. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And I pray, God, that we will do this so that others who visit us, others who work with us, others who see us living life in the neighborhood may really truly see that Jesus is real in our lives. And I pray that you would use that to create an opportunity for us to share the message of Jesus with them. Give us boldness, even as you give us opportunity. And as I always pray, it's our heart's desire to live life in such a way you get the glory you deserve from the lives that we live. We love you so much. We thank you so much. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.